The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is internationally recognized expert and author on children, teens, parenting, bullying, and moral development. Michelle Borba, who had a doctorate in education, addresses the, this issue head on in her new book, Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our On our all-about-me world. Um, Michelle provides tools for parents to teach their children empathy and explains why caring for others is actually the essential skill that will give today's young people a leg up the rest of their lives. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much. Well, okay, we're going to be, this is, the topic we're discussing and all, it's all, this is a topic that a lot of people are discussing today, and so your book obviously is very timely. Parents do want to raise empathetic, kind, compassionate children who are going to be successful and be happy, but apparently, and this is one, the first question I want you to address is why, according to studies, 40%, that kids today are 40% less empathetic than they were 30 years ago, well, and they're less happy, and they're more stressed. So what are we yep. doing wrong? Uh, a number <laughs> of variables. <laughs> yeah. How much time do we have? Yeah. Well, but, you know what? The first thing is to just simply put the pause button on. If we want to make changes, which we can, because we can certainly turn this around, we need to really recognize that there is an issue that's a problem. That study was done over a 30-year span of collecting data from thousands and thousands of incoming college freshmen across every zip code and genders. So we're looking at a 40% dip that really hit biggest around the year 2000 and an increase of 58% in narcissism. And narcissism kills empathy. So your question, why? Uh, when I was writing on Selfie, I discovered it wasn't one variable but a number of them that are kind of toxic. First one is, yes, about the year 2000 is when we get our kids really started hooking into social media. What's that big problem there? The internet is here to stay, but the more you face the screen, the average kid's facing it about seven and a half hours a day, you're less likely to tune into another human being and have face-to-face connection, and you learn empathy by looking at somebody else's face. Second thing is the culture is a little toxic. Uh, Role models have gone down, and we learn empathy by looking towards others who are caring and concerning, and we're kind of a celebrity-driven culture these days. Uh, third thing is our parenting styles. We now realize a lot of them are not matching the latest science. And fourth is just all the accumulation above. I think our children are clearly more stressed, but we've also reduced play in their lives, and play was the perfect playground where kids learned empathy. It's my turn. Now it's your turn. So there's a lot of other variables, but those seem to be the top ones that come off the top. 
So given that, that I mean, as you just said, the Internet, 2000, that's when this all began. Um, but the Internet is here to stay. Uh, so, yeah. and kids, and as you just said, kids aren't getting that face-to-face, whether it's in the sandbox or, or, or any other place, even relationships or connections with their friends at school. They're on the net, uh, there's social media, all of those kinds of things. So, because I think that's probably the key. So, how do we overcome that? What do we do? Because the internet isn't going to change, and it seems we get less and less connected. I mean, people, even, for instance, Adults don't necessarily go to work in a building. They do their work at home, isolated by themselves. Um, so we are becoming much more isolated and less connected, um, human to human, I guess. So what do we do? Well, oh, you mentioned that last <laughs> one, and that's the one that makes my heart stop, less human to human. Oh, that phrase alone just really stirs me big. Uh, Yes, you're right. The Internet is here to stay, but parenting has always been and always will be a balancing act. So the first step on all of this is actually the first habit of empathy. Empathy has nine habits in on selfie, and the first one is emotional literacy. If we really want caring, concerning kids, we need to create time, this face-to-face connection, and that means deliberate time. It could be, and there's a number of ways to do it, Creating a sacred unplugged times, maybe it's family time at dinner where you put your cell phone, including parents. By the way, 60% of kids say we're too connected. So everybody puts down their cell phone and you look face-to-face. We start deliberately when we are with our kids, when we're sitting in the carpool, when we're sitting side-by-side, start talking feelings far more. We do a far better job, says the research, with our daughters than we do with our sons starting when they're toddlers. You can Skype, you can FaceTime, but as your kids are doing those, you can say, let's watch to see if grandma's looking a little tired so you'll know when to say goodbye. There's a lot of ways to weave it in. Even watching movies can be a number of wonderful ways. Wow, look at her face. Listen to her. Wait, how does she sound? Just naturally weaving it in because that's that lost art of face-to-face connection or even conversation is waning with our kids, and it's the critical first step, first habit to creating unselfies. Well, you said that we do, it, we, we do a better job with our daughters than our sons. Uh, why is that? I think we've still got the, the, the problem that we're trying to raise, uh, that we look at empathy as soft and fluffy, and it's something more girlish as opposed to boyish. So what they actually did in studies is watch us mommies when we were with our daughters and sons, when they were toddlers. And what they discovered is that we talk emotions far more with our girls than our boys. The problem is, and we tell our boys, we talk consequences with our boys, and we tell them to hold in their feelings. So by the time they already go off to kindergarten at age five, there's this huge blue-pink divide that's already kicking in between those two with girls having a far broader emotion vocabulary. And it just means... Stop and start talking feelings far more with your sons if you want a socially just environment later on and uh, happier relationships with your sons and having them have happier relationships with, uh, or with their partners, we need to make sure that they are starting out with empathy and learning emotional vocabulary. All right. Is this what you're referring to in the book is like how we get that empathy advantage? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. The empathy advantage... When I, I've been researching this topic that's very concerning to me over about 10 years, 
and I began to look at the empathy was waning and bullying was going up because that's my own background is the bullying. And I began to see, my gosh, the best antidote we have to bullying is, is empathy. So I began to look at empathy and I'm going, my gosh, there's surprising hidden advantage to this. We're seeing this as soft and fluffy. When in reality, it's the benchmark not only to humanity, but it gives our kids an economic edge. That's one advantage. They get a huge better uh, employment opportunity because employers are looking for kids who can step into the client's shoes and go, how would I feel if that happened to me or where's he coming from? Success and happiness in a classroom, happiness in real life. We've been doing it the opposite where we give kids things when in reality, true happiness looks like when kids give to others or when they have also healthier relationships. And healthier relationships seems to be the real piece that brings down the stress of our kids, which is at an all-time high. And the other thing is uh, also helps them have healthier relationships and happier relationships. So there's huge advantages, and that's what the empathy advantage is. Okay, and you are very specific, like in your book, you talk about very specific things and ways in which to do that and give examples. So um, you, you talk about focusing on self-esteem and, and, and how... And not, I think this is one thing that we do. We focus on self-esteem, praise, and trophies boost narcissism and derails empathy, which I completely agree with. I mean, we have more. There's a huge business around trophies and and prizes. I guess. I mean, there that they make billions of dollars because you get a, every kid gets a trophy for everything they do, whether they actually win or not. So, um, I think that's really important because I see parents doing that all the time. They're always praising their kids and telling them how great they are and giving them a trophy for coming in twentieth place. And whatever the game was, and uh, not a good thing to do. <laughs> no, it's not a good thing to do. I'm laughing. Boy, that is the truth and laugh. In fact, here's the other thing you need to know is that they continue to do that. Businesses are so worried about college graduates that they're now hiring seriously praise coaches for them in Wall Street. I'm going, oh, my gosh, what <laughs> okay. the heck are we doing wrong? <laughs> but, but what we did, in all fairness, because we love our kids desperately, is we were told to get on the self-esteem bandwagon. And obviously our kids need self-esteem. But self-esteem, real self-esteem, good old Stanley Coopersmith, he was my hero when he wrote the antecedents of self-esteem, is a combination of two factors. One is, yeah, you feel worthy, but the other one is you feel confident in order to handle life. And what we've done is we've flipped the balance, so we've hit the kid with you're worthy, 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 and we're, we're bubble wrapping them, helicoptering them, so their confidence skills go down because they can't cope with life. So what we get, narcissism goes up, confidence goes down, and we have the child who is not thriving in the real world. It doesn't mean you shouldn't praise your kid, but one way you may want to start praising your child if you want to build a more empathetic kid is praise the child's character. When you see the child is caring, hey, that was really being caring and praise it as a noun or you're such a helper. What they discovered is that when we praise the character trait and tell them why, our children begin to develop actually something called a caring mindset. They begin to see themselves as a caring person who's more likely to help others and as a result, what happens is the narcissism goes down and they begin to be a more of a we kid and not a me kid. So just watch what you're praising. Or when your child comes home from school, don't be so quick to go what you get. We rarely say, how kind were you? Or did you see any <laughs> kind act? And our kids are saying, we're really missing that point. Harvard did an incredible study of 20,000 teens and, and parents last year. 
how important is it to be caring in your home? And only 20% of kids said it was important. Yeah. I mean, I, we well, don't how many parents ask the question? Yeah, how many yeah. parents, we, we, just as you said, what did you get on your test today, and did you win the game? I mean, those, yeah. you, uh, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so that is, that is, that's really key, you know, what you praise the kids for. That's really critical is what you're saying. And it brings me into this question about too much competition as well, because there, I mean, too much competition, whether it's in sports or getting good grades or building up your resume in elementary school for college. Um, so or how do we school? Or preschool, getting into kinder, in, in big cities, you have to take tests to get into to be a four-year-old or a three-year-old or taking yeah. tests to get into preschool, right? So, what? but then we have this very, parents are thinking, well, uh, my kids aren't going to, if they don't do well and they don't get into a good college, every, jobs are competitive. Um, it's really hard for them to get out of that mindset, that whole competitive, it's, yeah. It's a huge mindset and it's a really tough one because, I think there's a couple of factors. I think the first thing is we've narrowed our definition of success over the last year to a very, very small commodity that it's all in the test score and the SAT and the other side of the report card, like uh, just compassion and kindness and respect and responsibility are taking a huge dip. I, I interviewed about 500 kids when I was writing on selfie, and one of the, pe- the pieces that kept coming up with the kids is, how do you expect me to be caring when all you're doing is pitting me against the other kid? And it was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, and we're seeing, by the way, cheating is an all-time high with our kids as well. It's about 70% of kids that they have to cheat in order to get ahead. Now, sometimes it's cutting corners, but the other one is that you've got to get to the other side. So the sixth habit of the empathy advantage is teaching kids collaboration and teamwork. We probably will continue to be a competitive society, but we also need to make sure that our kids know how to get along. It's my turn and it's your turn. In classrooms, it could be cooperative learning structures, which we know boost achievement as well as test scores and getting kids to get along. Playground, uh, teaching them rock, paper, scissors. Remember those days? I do remember those days. Yeah. And our kids need those. And there's a lot of skills that we seem to be lacking and not just reinforcing with our children that June Cleaver remembered. And we better boost them because they really do help our kids get along and be more successful in life. Collaboration is a big piece of the empathy advantage. And it's a big piece of also helping kids not only get along, but just boosting, reducing bullying and the racial discord. What happens when you talk to parents? Because obviously, I mean, you, you're an expert. You go in, you talk to the, not only to the children, but the parents. What kind of a response do you get when you start talking about uh, an empathetic mindset, as you say, you know, changing well, your mindset? Yeah. Here's the thing. It's kind of interesting because I do parent groups. I've spoken to about a million parents all over the world. And the first thing is that when usually I do a parent session, we have to add the word success into the title of the speech and get them to come. So this will help your child be more successful. That's what's going to draw them. Once they get there and I begin to describe the statistics and characteristics of children who don't have empathy, I see mouths start to open. And I see, I just came back from Chicago last week. Parents were stunned and they actually couldn't get out of their seats. Do you know that we are raising the smartest generation on record, but also the most stressed out? Do you know that 
that I just came back from dealing with 2,000 mental health college counselors who say one out of three of our children will be so overwhelmed when they go off to college that they are stumped and cannot move. What we need to do is make sure that our kids thrive as well as survive out there in the real world, and here's how. And then we start with, once we get the buy-in, they get it. They're beginning to see it because they see it in their child, they see it in other child. And then what I do is just give them what we all need, is dozens of practical, here's the strategies. You don't need a PhD to do this. This is simple. It's not a program. It's just ways you can weave it in. On Stealthy has over 300 ideas in there, but I give them a few that are the simplest ones, and they go, I can do this. And that's what we really want to do is just create a new mindset in parenting that we're doing something a little wrong, and we need to get the balance back. We want healthy kids. Yeah, so the first thing you do, and, and I think parents probably, as you say, they have a sense that things aren't quite right, but you sort of bring, yeah. when you talk to them, then you really create this awareness. Yes, you're right, you validate that. And then in your book, you really specifically show them how to change things, how to make it right, um, which, and, and I think that's why your book is so important, because you're really clear, very specific, I guess. One of the things that you talk about, and this is a big issue today, is uh, it, when is the question, uh, when is it too soon or too late? to talk to kids about race, diversity, and otherness. I mean, that's obviously a topic that's a hot topic right now, uh, with, unfortunately, with our presidential candidate. So um, when is it too soon? Or what do you do? Uh, it's yeah. never too soon because what they've discovered is that even our babies are aware of race, of differences. She looks, you know, vanilla and he looks chocolate. But what we do that we've already discovered is we are the ones who set the tone by the messages we set. And also, a very important point, um, I loved when I was researching this book, Martin Hoffman's stuff from NYU was just brilliant. And he kept telling us a really important point as parents. We're more likely to empathize with those like us. So the key is how do we help our kids step out of us so they see them as more us. That's a real. That's what's happening right now. Is this huge divide? It's men versus women. It's black versus white. It's gay versus straight. And it's becoming more and more and you know bigger and bigger and bigger. So what we do, Hart and Hoffman would say, you expose them to differences at an earlier age, matter of fact differences, and they begin to get their comfort zone. Their social hub widens, and they're going to be much more empathetic with everybody around them. So they become a we kid and not a me kid. It's just a really simple, powerful premise. So it's not too early at a very young age by just having playdates. So it's important for parents to do this, important for teachers to do this. Yes, um, all all of the the significant. Yeah, all of the above, uh, coaches, whatever. I think sometimes what parents do, in my experience as a social worker, they sort of want to pretend we're all the same and that's the good thing rather than we're all different and that's the good thing. And, you know, I think that's one of the issues when you see young people parenting, um, that they're afraid to recognize differences and, and praise the differences and, and the diversity, which I think is important. Oh, I love that point. You're right. so right on that. Uh, and a study just came out of our kids who are college kids. They're so darn honest when they fill out these surveys. But what they said is that white college children admitted that they were far less likely to have perspective taking with those who are different or different races or different cultures if they went to, a, for instance, an all-white school. So maybe you are raising your child in an all-white school. Okay, fine, but open the, open the uh, social hub to your child and give them experiences in camps, in violin lessons, 
in the neighborhood, wherever it is, expose your kids to differences because the bottom line is the world is diverse. And what we have got to do is prepare our kids for a global world. It's a we world. It's not a me world. Very important point. Yes, it is global. It's international. Um, and uh, so this is the way it is. And, and I think that's a really that point, as you say, if you are growing up in an all-white school or you're going to school in an all-white school, then you need to take other opportunities to be with other people who are different than you and, and, and introduce diversity into a child's life in that way. Really important. Another thing you say is, um, self-control is a better <laughs> predictor of adult wealth, health, and happiness, a better than grades or IQ. You've got to convince these parents that the grades or the IQ are not necessarily the key. Self-control. Um, it seems to me we have, as you said, we have less and less self. We're getting control. Yeah. We're fatter. We have more, you know, we're addicted to drugs and alcohol. And to me, it appears that self-control is kind of going down the tube. So what do we do with the kids? Well, I think the first thing is, once again, be aware of it. And you've hit a really interesting point. When I gathered that study, it was a study that's been going on for, for 40 years, 50 years in New Zealand. What they did is they tracked thousands of kids all born around the same day or same week, and they followed them, researchers, hundreds of them, to find out who was going to be more successful when they grew up in the real-life world. And they discovered one of the highest correlations to the kids who were successful and happier as they became adults was those kids who learned, who learned self-control at a young age because it's clearly teachable. Not only does it make you happier, but it also makes you wealthier, there's a point, because you're able to save your money. You're able to be financially solvable. Now, there's a point to the majority, 20, the average kid comes back and lives with us till around the age of 26. It also has a huge thing to do with empathy because as your stress builds and you can't manage the feeling, the empathy gap sets in. And the empathy gap is you feel empathy, but you can't act empathically because your stress levels or you're out of control or you don't notice the other person when I was researching this chapter, I was actually working on Army bases overseas. I, I worked with the Pentagon, hired me to train mental health counselors around the world. Uh, incredible experiences. But the commanders told me one of the most amazing things I've ever learned in my life, how they were revamping the training for Navy SEALs, the most elite forces in the world. All of this is in on selfie, but here's the bottom line that I think is, wow, this is what we're doing wrong. I said, what are you doing differently? They said, we're doing four things, and it's helping them build their courage, handle the fear, handle the stress, and it's saving their lives. The first one, if you could do anything, is deep breathing. And we've been hearing that as mindfulness, but it's so darn simple. When, they, when you teach a child, as soon as you start to feel that stress go in, and by the way, you've got to point out your kid's stress sign because your little hands are in a fist or your feet are going up and down. Are you starting to feel that heart go boom, boom, boom? Feel your stress signs. That's the first step to self-regulation. It's not you being the regulator, the child. Take a deep, slow breath and tell yourself calm. But you take it really, really deep, says the Navy SEALs. You go up like you're doing an elevator ride. You hold it for at least a count of two, and you slowly let it out. What happens? You hit your vagus nerve, and it's the fastest way to relax. It opens up your brain because you're getting oxygen to it. You'll need more than one breath. But if you were to do anything all summer long with your child, breathe together with your child because it'll help them the rest of their life learn to control that emotion. Breathe. With little kids, you can call it dragon breaths. You're a toddler. 
freeze your feet. No, take a deep, slow breath. Now, whoa, blow out your meanies like a big dragon. And what happens is kids begin to get the feeling of it. Well, that's one way when you talk about the Navy SEALs, because I think kind of traditionally parents have always thought about deep breathing and meditation is, yeah. you know, you're not going to be successful. You might be calm, but you're not going to get out there and be able to accomplish anything. So when you associate it very, uh, I don't want to say clever because it's a, it's realistic, it's true, but with the Navy SEALs, there yeah. you've got it. I, it's a hook for the parents to start doing this for their kids. Oh, I hope so. Because yeah. I want, my gosh, if they're doing it, and it's working for them. Yeah. I'm in San Diego right now, and right around the corner from me is Coronado, which is where the, the training base for Navy SEALs is. It's the most rigorous training you could possibly do. And a lot of them, even though they were the best and the brightest and the, just amazing, weren't making it through that training. So they revamped it. The second thing they teach kids to do is chunk it. They teach the Navy SEALs to do it. Don't think about trying to get through the whole day Try to get through, get through the first minute. Don't worry about getting through the whole speech. Just get through the first second. Once you get through the first second, you add the second second. You add the third second. What kids need are coping strategies. Unselfie has dozens of them, but the key is don't teach them dozens. Find the one that's going to work for your child and keep repeating it over and over again because empathy needs to be developed as a habit. Once you get the habit, then you can add the next and the next. But the key that's really cool is if you teach your child, it's also going to help you. And we're the most stressed out population of parents known to man as well. We've yeah. got to help each other. Okay, you said that there were four, didn't you? The, yeah. There was the deep yeah. breathing and then get that. So that second one just resonates. Get, <laughs> just get through that first minute. But, get you know, you wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a third one is mental rehearsal, and it's what Olympians do all the time. You rehearse the, from start to finish that race. What's going to look? If there's a problem along the way, what are you going to do? If your goggles fill up with water, what are you going to do? So you're prepared, and the fear goes down, and the stress goes down. You do the same with a child. You figure out what he's most afraid of, riding the school bus. I think I'm not going to remember the bus mm-hmm. number. Okay, then let's practice. You don't tell your child what to do. You show them. You walk it through and you rehearse it. All of research says that's the best way to teach a skill. Okay, then let's take a big marking pen and let's put your bus number right in the middle of your shoe inside the the tongue so nobody can see it. And let's go right now out to the bus stop on Saturday and let's practice it over and over. Now see it in your mind. So once you practice it, even you don't have to go to the place, you rehearse it right before he goes to sleep and it helps them. And the, the fourth one is we've known it for years, but that's use a positive affirmation or come up with a statement that works for your child, like I can do this or I'm calm or I'll get through it. One statement only. You can put it on an index card in their backpack, but you've got to rehearse it over and over and over. My little one was always when afraid of the dark. So what I would do is stand behind him and say the line, I can do it, I can do it, say it, Zach, say it, Zach, and pretty soon he'd repeat it, he'd repeat it, until pretty soon he was able to get through it and he didn't need me, he'd say it inside his own mind. So you, uh, did you raise three boys, is that what I read, you have three boys? Yes. Yeah, and yes. so do I. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and so that is a house, cha- challenge. Does your house yeah. smell like dirty socks most of the time? Oh, most of the time, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. and, and still does when they come home. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that yeah, that's another piece of it, right? Exactly. Yeah. This has been great. I mean, your book is fantastic, Unselfy: Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World, and it's it really is an important book because you are so. Specific. You really challenge parents, but then you just really give them the options and the answers. So, um, two things: what website can we go to to get more information about the book and you? Um, oh, thank you, thank you. I'm Michelle Borba, so it's that's the that's the name of my website: M I C H E L E B O R B A. I'm a one L girl, but yeah. Unselfie is available just about anywhere right now. Certainly in a bookstore, but Amazon, and it's in digital form audio form or hardback, the one thing, uh, even if you go to my website and any teacher, there's an educator guide on there that's free, download it. I've got teachers all over the world now who are reading this together with other teachers to create unselfie schools. How do we build empathy in our school environments? Yes, we're going to make our kids smart and learn, but let's create an environment that's caring so we also can reduce bullying. So that's a free download just on my homepage as well. All right, so Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. Michelle Borba, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was great talking to you. Oh, thank you. We are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com 
and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is University of Missouri doctoral candidate Karen Trailer Adolf. Uh, we're going to be talking about the dynamics of grand families and raising kinship children. More than 2.2 million children are being raised by their grandparents, other relatives, or loved ones. Added financial strains caused by this living arrangement and subsequent legal issues create challenges and often push these grand families into poverty. Counseling psychology doctoral candidate Karen Trailer Adolf and researchers at the University of Missouri are analyzing how grand families cope with pressures created by this increasingly common family arrangement. Um, Karen is also the coordinator uh, for a the family support specialist with an MU program that provides resources and services for Missouri families. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Karen. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's obviously, it's a very important project. You're talking about 2.2 million children, which is a lot of children here in the United States yes. being raised by their grandparents. I guess the first question is, obviously, there were reasons why you decided to to become involved in this research um, because this creates an enormous problem in terms of poverty, um, as you say, legal issues, lots of challenges. Um, when did you begin the research? How long has this been going on? How long have you been doing the research and when did you start the program? Um, I've been doing this research on grand families for about three years now. Um, it's a little slower in the process because understanding that when you're working with a really a vulnerable population, the research itself can take a, a longer time. Um, I've done a lot of work to try to immerse myself in the grand families community, which helps to get participants in the research because they see your face, they feel your heart, and understand that you really care about them. Um, I started actually volunteering at ParentLink probably in 2010. Um, I had just lost my last grandparent who um, had raised a number of my cousins. Um, my grandparents had raised 13 children of their own, and then as they were starting to wrap up the end with the last three, the older ones started having children and unfortunately saw fit for my grandparents to raise them. And having lost my last grandparent, I realized the impact that he had on my cousins, my family, and the community at large, and just wondered what was happening to support grand families at this time. The families in rural Georgia, like uh, my grandparents were, they raised their own cattle, they had farms, everybody knew who they were, you could sign kids up for school, take them to the doctor, and it wasn't a problem, but then I start to think about, well, how are families prepared in this day and age, in this age of legalities and understanding, you know, who has guardianship and all of that, it's a lot more difficult. And then many, oftentimes families are getting calls in the middle of the night and they have no clue how to navigate a number of social services. So that's how I became involved in 2010 um, through a kickoff in the Boone County area. I mean, here in Missouri, um, with, in coordination with AARP, we realized there was a need for a support group in the area. So I started volunteering with that. Now I co-lead a support group for grand families and eventually started um, coordinating the Missouri Grand Family Coalition, which is just a number of agencies like health and senior services, um, social services, uh, our university extension offices, who have support groups and offer um, supports and services to different families. So that's a little of how I got into it. My early light, in my early days of wanting to become a therapist, I started working on like public health and assessment research projects and realized the big disparities that were there. And all of this came together 
with realizing the impact of grand families, that often people were in poverty, um, having a lot of challenges. There were a lot of disparities. And so it brought it all together. How could I support families and find a way to highlight their strengths and get them the support that they need? Well, okay, you have all the credentials because obviously, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, the, the academic credentials, obviously, but also personally because you've gone through it. You've had those kinds of experiences. I just kind of want to get back to your personal experience because for you, mm-hmm. was it, you know, you, you said you lost your last grandparent. Yes. What, how was it, you know, the experience of being raised by a grandparent, uh, let's say, as opposed to uh, maybe uh, friends who are raised by their parents, the differences? Um, well, now, you would, I wasn't yeah. raised by my grandparents. Mm-hmm. No, my, my cousins were raised by my grandparents. Your cousins I were, okay, so, yeah. Yeah, and I realized it, but what, um, in regards to my relationship with my grandfather, who was that last grandparent, I lost my father as a teenager in an accident on the job and went through a very long depression um, throughout um, elementary school, high school, early years in college, and my mom moved in to take care of my grandfather while I was in college. So he didn't raise me, but I lived with him in his latter days. And he was really the first person, I always talk about kids want to see somebody's eyes light up when they come in the room. He really helped me come through that depression, and that was my experience with him. So not being raised, but being supported by him and all that he gave. Um, And so that was the personal experience of really trying to figure out, well, how can now we support folks who were like him, who were doing so much, and just by the seat of their pants and the grace of God, just, you know, I'm doing what I know to do to take care of these kids, I mean, with no support from the community in terms of social services at all. Um, so that's really the personal experience that it was of knowing how the impact that he had on me personally, but definitely seeing for the ones that he did raise, um, you know, the what he brought them through and how successful they became after having the touch from him. I mean, those, and that's the positives. I mean, obviously, uh, for you, it was a, a really good experience, as you say. You know, when you walked in the mm-hmm. room, his eyes lit up, and, and that's all. Yes. That's the good stuff. But then some of these 2.2 million children don't have that experience. It seems to me that some of them are being raised by grandparents who maybe raised their own kids who have become, I mean, the, the, the downside is they can't take care of their own kids because maybe they are addicted, they have drug problems, right. and that's a different right. set of issues. Maybe you can talk to us about that because I'm sure you, obviously, that's what you see also on a daily basis. Right. And so what we try to do, the families that we work with, grand families that exist, the grandparents are taking care of them, have been vetted so we know that they are um, positive impacts on the kids' lives. And so what we're trying to do is help them to be, you know, to have that light shine, you know, when the kids come in. Um, Unfortunately, the kids who've been raised with parents um, who aren't able to do that, often they've gone through a lot of trauma, um, abuse and neglect. If they've um, been involved with the children's division or children's services, child welfare services, you know, they've been through a lot of different things. So what we're hoping to do is to help grandparents help them move past those things or work through the challenges that they've been through. I know that it's been hard with grandparents um, have sort of gotten a, a bad rap over the years because early on the child welfare system would not give kids 
to their families of origin because they felt like, well, if their biological parents weren't capable, perhaps it was an extension of something else that happened. But then they started to realize, number one, just for sheer numbers, there were too many kids in the child welfare system to give to strangers. Well, maybe there are families who are capable. And there are plenty of families that are. I just met a grandma the other day, just by, I mean, in the times that we live in, they don't live in the same town. She had no clue what was going on with her daughter. When she would visit, the daughter seemed fine and seemed like she had it together. The home was okay. And little did she know, and after she received custody of the baby, she realized people were saying, no, this is what was really going on in the town. So it's not that the grandparents and other relatives aren't viable candidates to raise kids. They just may not know what's happening with them. Um, and so that's why we want to um, focus on these things. My, my research is actually understanding the impact of family routines and rituals in relative and kinship families. Free, easy, simple, but profound things that families can do to help create consistency in an environment where these kids can flourish. Um, but yes, unfortunately, a number of the families, um, the kids who come to those families have had a lot of negative events, and that's typically what the research talks about. The negative events that have brought them into grand families and the challenges that grand families have, which may include poverty. Some folks are retired on a fixed income, maybe on disability, and then all of a sudden they're raising a baby or a two-year-old, and it may set them into poverty, but it's not that there's no hope. And that's what the research hopes to show and all the work that we do with the coalition, which support groups and services are to help them shore up their um, coping abilities and their resources to raise the kids. Now, are you saying, for instance, in your research and also working directly with the grand families, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that the resources, perhaps the support services and the resources out there, maybe financial resources, they are available, but maybe the grandparents just don't know how to avail themselves to those support services, so exactly, yeah, exactly. It's I think it's an well, it's an access issue, but sometimes it is an availability issue, um, in which we really need to push for that. Years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, there was a big push through um, organizations like AARP, Generations United, Child Welfare League of America, where they had like rallies in D.C. and they started kinship navigator programs. There was a time when there was more finances and support for grandparents raising grandchildren, but as administrations change and, and um, ideologies change or whatever, the focus shifts. But that doesn't, hasn't shifted the grand families growing, the population growing. Um, so sometimes the resources just aren't there, and especially in a place like Missouri where we have a lot of rural areas, folks just don't know what they qualify for, um, how to access services. I've had families call in as a family support specialist with ParentLink on our warm line who, you know, have worked, and they've never dealt with uh, Medicaid, um, any type of social services, WIC, SNAP, which food stamps, those sorts of things. So we have to help families navigate those systems. I'm even dealing with the school systems if they haven't raised kids in a while, understanding how to approach schools, how to be a better support and those sorts of things. But I also want to point out, too, that it's all not negative situations that brought families in. We have a number of families who are military families. Folks are deployed and grand families are created. So it doesn't just have to be that they're negative situations the kids are living through. It can be a number of circumstances. So, yeah, and, and that's something I, I actually I hadn't thought of. You know, you do kind mm-hmm. of head, you know, veer towards the negative, I guess. I You know, yeah. thinking about the parents can't take care of them, there's something wrong with the parents or, uh, mm-hmm. or they divorce or death or, you know, right, very different. Right, yeah. exactly. Difficult situation. Or young parents. 
you know, if, if you have a teenage parent who needs some assistance, you become a grand family because you're the primary caregiver either as a grandparent, an aunt, uncle, anybody who's supporting. And, you know, unfortunately, the teenager may have found themselves in a certain position, but if they're not going to school and, you know, trying to shore up their self-esteem and their self-sufficiency, then they can regain custody of their children and be an active part. And that doesn't mean that the parents aren't present in a grand family. There's some families who the biological parent is not present at all. And then some where they are there. So it's just a mix. What are some of the legal issues? Because I would imagine there are huge legal issues, as you say, and let's say the grandparents Mm -hmm. aren't legal guardians, but it's really necessary for them to take care of the kids and they don't have access. Let's say even the kid gets sick, you you know, you can't. Exactly. Right. Let's talk about some of those issues, the legal issues. Yeah, that's actually the biggest challenge. I've recently um, been working with Missouri Care, a well care company um, here in Missouri, on health connections councils in the St. Louis and Kansas City area, our largest metro areas in the state. And one of their big missions is focusing on the legal issues. How can um, they reduce stressors? And one of the biggest stresses is just getting access to services. Um, uh, often families are informally put together. So even the 2.2 million children that we talk about in the U.S. Census, that still could be an underestimate because people aren't um, are noting that they really are the caretaker. And so biological parents often still have guardianship, which leaves the families at a loss because, again, they can't sign them up for school. They can't um, take them to the doctor if something happens. They may be able to get Medicaid for them because those kinds of things are focused on the kids, their income, and they have to have health insurance. But being able to have full access to services, assessments, especially medications, controlled substances for kids with ADHD, that is something a legal guardian has to be present to do. And if the parent is not there, then the kids may suffer. Um, So one thing that we are working on, we were just talking about yesterday in a meeting, there's a new statute um, that's recently come to help families with that in Missouri, where if the parent is nowhere present at all, they sign an affidavit, have it notarized, and then doctors and schools are obligated to honor it for at least a year until the family is found, the biological parents are found, in order to get those basic services that kids need. But the only the problem with that, though, you may get them in school, you may have them at the doctor, there's no financial assistance. So in order to get any extra subsidies, you do have to be a legal guardian. Sometimes families are afraid to push the issue because the biological parent may want to still receive subsidies if they're already getting it, and they feel like, you know, well, if I push the issue, they'll just take the child and then the child's in an unsafe situation. Mm -hmm. So they'll go along with the informal arrangement, but then they find it on the back end later that they can't do all they need to do for the kids. Um, So we really try to problem solve with families to walk through what's the best interest. Um, Sometimes it may involve making a hotline to the child abuse and neglect hotline to say this parent really isn't involved. I do need to accept guardianship. Um, And in that way, they can become a guardian and receive services. Even though the state may be the legal guardian, they have some access to supports for themselves and supports for the kids. So what you're doing in Missouri, is this duplicated in any way that you know across the states? Are other states doing what you're doing? Are this grand families are becoming more prevalent also around the United States? I mean, obviously not just in Missouri. Yes, it's definitely prevalent around the state, under um, the United States. Um, and again, those kinship navigator programs, they exist, I know, in New Jersey. 
um, I thought Massachusetts and New York. There, so there are some states that are more progressive, and it's really just centralized um, coordination of care. So there's one number people can access to get, um, you know, access to the services that are available to families and to help them walk through the process. Missouri doesn't have a kinship navigator program, but ParentLink sort of serves as a hub for that. Since we have a warm line phone number that people can call into or email, text, however they can reach us, Facebook, we serve as that to um, uh, direct people to their local support groups, agencies that might be able to help, and things like that. Um, it's really important that each state has a method of doing that so people know where to go. So some states, like Georgia, um, have created grand family centers. So maybe their health and senior services area agencies on aging have a specific center that grand families can go to where they may have support groups, daycare, help with navigating different systems and paperwork and things like that. So I think each state has something. There are a lot of federal grant or a few federal grants that have existed, like we've gotten a grant at ParentLink through the Brookdale Foundation Relatives as Parents Program, and they have grants around the United States. So some states are, are better than others in terms of having maybe smaller programs in different places or a centralized um, way of accessing services. Well, you know, I think it's important that grand families, just the name, uh, yes. becomes a name that everybody yes. knows and hears about. I mean, that's really important. It becomes one of, I'm going to put this in quotes, but like one of the non-traditional families that we're always yes. talking about because you don't always hear grand families. You hear a lot of right. other non-traditional families. Uh, if there is right. a traditional family in the United States today, right. I'm not sure there is, but, nor should there be. But you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, grand families, mm-hmm. you got to get the word out there. People have to recognize it, I think, and, and uh, know what that means, which is obviously what you're doing in your research. And in your research, talk to us about yes. this because you have found that with certain and maybe a lot of the grand families, um, the real positive outcomes in terms of, of the response of the children, that uh, you, you're analyzing how these grand families cope and that when they do it right, uh, there are really good results with the kids. You know, the kids really do do well. So what are the things that you've seen that grand parents in grand families do uh, that make it a positive outcome for the children. And yes, hello. Yep. Okay, Can you hear me? Still here. Yes, yeah. ma'am. Um, yeah. So what I'm looking at is basic routines and rituals, and from traditional routine and ritual. Um, Research that's existed for a long time, but it hasn't been really on non-traditional families. It's been on um, intact families, two parents in the home, middle income, not much diversity um, in terms of um, even race and ethnic diversity. And so in those families, it's easier to have routines and rituals. Routines meaning someone's helping with the homework, everyone's sitting down to dinner together, we have bedtime, um, certain schedules that we keep. And rituals meaning those things that have deeper meaning for us, Additional things that we continue and pass on to generations, um, faith-based organizations, civic organizations, even vacations, celebrations, things like that, have traditionally been easier when families are intact and that more traditional family. But my aim was to show that doing those same things, and even if it's modified, in grand families where grandparents, relatives, or other loved ones are the caretakers, that can still have an impact on the family as well. And this is so important for kids who've come out of 
um, homes where maybe those routines and rituals weren't there. I mean, that's why kids are removed from their homes, mainly because there may have been some abuse or neglect where there's no consistency, no positivity. So what we found just early results is that as far as rituals, those things that are more meaningful and consistent, vacationing, celebrating holidays, faith-based cultural experiences, make the family feel closer. When families feel closer, they have more trust, they have more reliability on each other, they feel cohesive, there's flexibility in the family, so it's not so rigid. And for kids who are coming out of trauma, rigidity is something that has happened. You know, you don't move, you may, you know, be abused in some way, you're scared, you're not open to your family or other people, and this helps kids really come out and be the best they can be. There are fewer problems at school that we've seen so far um, in terms of hyperactivity at home as well, or behavior problems at school. And then those with established routines in terms, again, homework, mealtimes, behavior consequences, that helps them to feel closer too. And so the ways that we're help, trying to help families cope once we get the data in is to show that the simple and profound things that you do already, you know, don't worry about the money and all of that, just be present. Be present, be consistent, and be involved with your kids, and that will make the difference for them, no matter what has happened in the past. And I think it's important for grandfamilies to know, because if they are dealing with kids who come out of trauma, often they just want to love them. They want to love them back to health. They want to love them, you know, into safety, but it's more than love. You have to have the consistency, and that's the idea behind routines and rituals. It is consistent. It's not strict. It's not punishment. It's not making you do things, but it's, I'm showing you I love you by, by engaging with you on a regular basis and being dependable for you where your biological parent may not have been in the past. Yep. And so, so that's the, what the research is really about. Many of the children have come from chaos, and so we want to yeah. create as you, yeah, uh, routines, rituals, as you say, consistency, not punishment. Um, yes. Maybe one last question, because we don't have that much time left, but yeah. what about the grandparents themselves? Because I'm thinking of an older population. They don't necessarily yeah. have to be that old. Some grandparents are in their 40s, but what about the oh, ones certainly. that they... The older ones, because they, they themselves, uh, you know, they don't have as much energy. They may have their own medical right. problems. Um, how does that fit into the picture in terms of their ability to, to grandparent? Right. That is a huge concern. And like you said, a good, actually the majority of grandparents are younger than 60 um, that we've been finding. But for those older ones, what we try to do is offer the support groups or direct them to support groups, but help them navigate those different systems in different ways. So maybe they can't make it to every ball game, but we find somebody that's designated to help them go. Um, if they can at least drive there, or somebody else can have them be present. So actually to provide support in the best way that they can. And um, traditional traditions that are passed on, I mean, that can just be an oral tradition. So some of the things that they always do, if they always bake cookies, or it may really simple things that the kids can depend on. But in the event where they can't be physically present, we try to help them find resources that can allow them to do that. If it's big brother, big sisters, if it's problem solving, who in their community might help, because then the, their peers also change, and that's a huge problem for um, grandfamilies of, of in the, with grandparents raising grandchildren, they're not in the same peer group anymore. So they're talking about going to kindergarten being as a parent as opposed to just showing up and supporting when they can to a play or whatever. Now they're in parent-teacher meetings and dealing with behavior issues that they exist. So trying to find people and support case management, those types of things that can help offset what their challenges might be. 
Yeah, well, very interesting that, uh, you know, I'd be interested in, in the statistics, probably you don't have them right here, you know, how many of the grandparents are like over 60 and, and really elderly or are most of these mm-hmm. grandparents really younger in, the, in these kinds of situations. Um, we only have a couple more minutes left. Okay. But uh, so what do you want to leave us with? Because it would be interesting for anybody who wants to continue uh, knowing more about this topic, the dynamics of grand families, something that we can follow, uh, your research at the University of Missouri, or is there anything online, a website that we can go to? Yes, there are two, two um, areas I would like them to go. Um, grandfamilies.missouri.edu is the website, um, ParentLink's website on grandfamilies. My research can also be found there, but it talks a little bit about um, some of the challenges and resources that we have and how we can direct them to different things. Now, our call line for the warm line is only for Missouri, but any family, um, you know, any of your listeners can look just to get ideas on what may be helpful. As far as the research, that is um, open to anyone in any state, and that's at tinyurl.com forward slash grandfamilies research, and grandfamilies is in the plural. Great. Karen Trailer Adolf, Dynamics of Grandfamilies and Raising Kinship Children. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Great talking to you. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.